you know, it's a, at, at, at the age of nine years old, uh, again, not knowing uh, what was really going on, because I felt that uh, I wasn't Japanese. I was not Japanese at nine years old. I, I felt that I was an American. And why, why, why all this going on? Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Keepin' It Arcadia. I'm Nicole. And I'm Claire, and we are super excited that you joined us for another episode. With the recent influx of Asian American hate crimes because of COVID-19, more people are turning their attention to the history of racism towards Asians throughout American history. In this episode, we'll unpack the history of our city, as well as the history and experiences of Asian Americans in Arcadia. To understand Arcadia's history, we interviewed Ms. Beverly Street, a current member of the Arcadia Historical Society. My name is Beverly Street. I have resided in Arcadia since 1965, and um, this has been a wonderful place to live. Uh, I, as part of the Historical Society Board, joined that in 2007. Um, the purpose of the Arcadia Historical Society seeks to, to preserve, protect, and interpret and promote community interest in the history of Arcadia and involve the local community in the presentation and celebration of our city's heritage. And that's what makes this so special. I truly believe Arcadia Historical Society Board appreciates the invitation to share some of our information with you. It is our goal to reach out beyond our generation to coming generations. And so this makes this very special to us. Members of the Arcadia Historical Society have played an integral role in many city efforts, including funding money for the restoration of Queen Anne Cottage at the Arboretum, working with the city to establish the Guild Museum of Arcadia History, creating History Lives Here markers across the city in places like First Avenue Middle School and the Adams Pack to highlight historical locations and much more. These members also help document and recount Arcadia's history and stories, all the way back to its early beginnings. Hundreds of years ago, when the Native Americans lived on this land, it was very full of uh, lush plants and rivers and streams and uh, lakes naturally. Eventually, after Spanish explorers took over the land, Spain gave grants to people who would raise livestock and crops in the area. Hugo Reed and his wife did that, and they were granted the Rancho Santa Anita land. On the Arboretum grounds is a dwelling that actually is in the site where Hugo Reed and Victoria lived uh, while during this rancho time. Later, there were several owners, but the most prestigious owner was Elias Jackson Baldwin. He saw everything a little differently than most. And his, he became wealthy because of his uh, determination to succeed. 
his family were farmers and they moved to Indiana. And there he uh, convinced his dad, and this is kind of a cute story, that he's 12 years old, he's going to drive cattle to market. And the father said, you must get so much per head of the cattle. But if you can get more, that money will be yours. Well, that was just enough for him to be enticed. So the night before they were to be weighed, he had salt available for the livestock and then a lot of water to drink. And so when they went to the market, they weighed more than the original uh, poundage and he earned hefty sum. Now in high school, he married his high school sweetheart who was named Sarah. And Sarah and he, uh, with the savings of money they developed in interesting ways, they had a market for a time. And then in 1947, of course, there was a lot of talk about California and gold. Now, Elias did not think to load his carriages with the family heirlooms, no. He loaded his carriages with things he could sell. And so where most people traveling across the country lost money, he gained money because he was selling product that people needed. Um, he ends up in California and through a, a variety of different ways, he becomes more and more wealthy. And one of the ways he became wealthy was through the stock market. People started to call him lucky and he didn't appreciate it because he was a hardworking guy in his opinion and he didn't like that idea. Now he did come down to Southern California because he heard about a gold mine in the San Bernardino mountains. And on his way through to that mine, he came through what we know as the city of Arcadia. And in so doing, he um, fell in love with this land. The mine in San Bernardino didn't quite work out, but he did purchase the land here. And he purchased it from a man, but through those dealings, he developed 45 thousand acres of land that was Rancho Santa Anita. And he, uh, in this time frame, he brought um, his third wife with child, um, which her name was Anita. His third wife was named Jenny. And um, that relationship probably was the love of his life. I don't think I mentioned that Sarah and he, in his first marriage, had a daughter named Claire. And so Lucky Baldwin had two daughters, very much raised very differently. Claire was raised like his best friend. She was kind of a cowgirl. Anita, coming later in his life and where he was more wealthy, he treated her like a princess and he wanted her to have every advantage and so she was raised very regally and Claire was kind of raised a fun person to know. The Baldwin 
ranch or Santa Anita ranch was very lush. And that's what he realized. He could grow grapes. He could have a vineyard. He could have a racetrack. He could have orchards. And he had all of those and livestock. And so this area was just beautiful. And he made it even more beautiful. And because he traveled the world, he brought and found exotic plants. And that's why the Arboretum has some very unique plants that are years and years, decades old. Um, in 1903, he found that if he converted this area to a city, had a charter as a city, he could make even more money. And so that is what happened in 1903. Then there came how to name this city. And there were other names chosen, but Arcadia is actually Arcadia in Greek. And when he visited Greece, there was a region called Arcadia. And he thought that was so much like our city of Arcadia that he named our city Arcadia. And um, as far as how far reaching this ranch was, I'm going to read a little something that I think will give you an idea of how big this was. The total Baldwin holdings by 1880 were just short of 45,000 acres. Today, the San Gabriel Valley cities of Arcadia, Monrovia, Sierra Madre, Temple City, much of El Monte, South El Monte, the city of industry, most of Baldwin Park, Bassett, south of Valley Boulevard, West Covina and La Puente, west of Glendora Avenue, and portions of Montebello, South San Gabriel and Monterey Park are all a part of former Baldwin's land. So I think that gives you an idea of how big his holdings were at one time and how wealthy he was. Um, when I mentioned uh, that he brought Jenny to Santa, Santa Anita, the ranch of Santa Anita, he um, also was um, developing different properties uh, on the land itself. Today, if you visit the Arboretum, you know of the Queen Anne Cottage that was actually built for his fourth wife because Jenny tragically passed at 23 years of age. And the idea, it was never really going to be used as a home. It was a guest area for all the marvelous people that he was in touch with, whether it be theatrical, opera, whatever, important people of the day he had there to uh, enjoy the property. He, however, lived in the adobe, which he had added uh, an extension to, so it was L-shaped. Um, right now, the Arboretum is restoring the adobe. The grounds around it are to be restored very immediately, and it should be able to be viewed in its entirety this coming fall, which is really exciting. The cottage right now is in um, 
the process. The funding has been gained to restore it, but the um, county has paperwork to process before it can be completed. But what they're doing is refurbishing the um, veranda around the cottage. All the beautiful marble will be replaced as it once was and the wooding and the railing and all of that. And so it should be absolutely beautiful. And I don't know the completion of that date. But those things are available when you go to the Arboretum. There are so many wonderful things there. From this early history of Arcadia, the city and the demographic has grown and changed drastically. To gain an understanding of how Arcadia came to become the heavily populated Asian community that it is now, we asked Mystery about some of the factors that led to a large influx of Asian Americans. In my knowledge, there are several factors that happened. Um, I, I don't know the initial reason that this happened, but supposedly uh, a large community of Chinese moved to Monterey Park. And um, then there was uh, instability financially for many wealthy people in China who were afraid that their money was going to be um, not permitted to leave China. So there, there are a couple of factors that I understand. In the 1980s, there was a few people who came to Arcadia and built beautiful homes, um, South Longden area by Second Street in South Longden, in that area anyway. And then um, personally, I know as a sister city commissioner in the late 1990s, uh, there was a uh, interest in having a sister city with uh, a Chinese province. And that didn't occur, but in the process, many uh, people visited Arcadia. And I think they liked what they saw. And I, I do believe that uh, because our school system is so positive, they like that idea too, that if they had children, their children would be well-educated in Arcadia. So there was a variety of factors, um, but I do believe that the fact it's a serene area and it would meet their needs. And of course, land, I think to them here was very reasonable. Then developers started buying homes that were for sale and developing them, and that added more interest, I'm sure. Although 60% of Arcadia's current population is comprised of Asians, the Asians living within our community have experienced great challenges. During World War II, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans were unfairly targeted, both on a personal and governmental level. Many families cut ties vandalized and harassed Japanese Americans, even those who were serving the community or America in the military. Through Executive Order 9066, which was issued by Franklin Roosevelt, 
Japanese Americans were stripped of their rights and put into isolated internment camps. One of the relocation camps was at the Santa Anita Racetrack at the center of the city of Arcadia. We talked to Ned Morioka, Mrs. Hideko Sansui, and Mr. Akira, who were children in Japanese internment camps in America. Approximately 65 of us, our whole family was involved, not the whole family, my uncle, who is my mother's uh, brother, eldest brother, we had a riot and they attempted to kill him. I can recall that uh, we were, uh, they sent uh, two and a half ton trucks, army trucks Jeez. for us. And uh, I still remember my mother just throwing uh, whatever we had uh, from the barracks into a suitcase. Uh, and we were just you know, loaded into the uh, two and a half ton trucks and uh, sent to the uh, army headquarters there for Manzanar. When I was there, and I can, can vividly recall, and backing the story, my uncle was hit by, uh, I guess, pro-Japanese interns, uh, and uh, but fortunately the MP, MPs were uh, there because my, her, his daughter was able to uh, sneak up from her bedroom to holler for help. Wow. He was sent to the uh, Manzanar Hospital, and the doctors there put him uh, in between two mattresses wow. as this crowd of rioters marched with these torches up, up, up to the uh, hospital to say, kill Tayama, kill Tayama. So she thought, since I was just a newborn, she thought I was going to die in that godforsaken place. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah, because... I asked my sister, who is uh, almost 13 years older than me, and they don't like to talk about it. I but see. I had asked her, I said, were we in the stables? And she says, yes. At that time, there was an outbreak of uh, chicken pox. At the and she said, it was horrible, you know. And, and uh, my mother, of course, you know, being a newborn, she, she was so worried that I was going to get it. But they didn't clean it, sanitize it, or do any of that. And and then there were, and then he, she was telling me that I said, okay, so what did we use for bedding? And she says we had a they gave you hand out everybody gunny sacks and you filled it with straw. That was the bed. The one of my sister-in-law who is seven years older than me, so she was seven years old when she went. She says, she remembers that. And, and and she says it was so smelly in there. She said it's a wonder we we survived. You know? <laughs> yeah. She says you know I mean you know how the horses dropping smell and it is yes of course it's penetrated into the wood and everything so you, I don't think you could get rid of that smell. Winds blew. It was hot there, cold there. Winds blew, and uh, you know lots of dust inside those housing, uh, not too much privacy for sure. And then the uh, mess mess halls, you know, every different blocks had their, their different mess halls from my understanding. But you know, what was atrocious to me was the uh, uh, bathroom facilities. The showers oh, yeah. were open, the commodes were open. So, you know, people were uh, pretty self-conscious trying to take a shower 
Afterwards, although the U.S. government admitted their wrongdoings and paid more than $1.6 billion, an equivalent to $3,460,000,000 dollars in 2019 in reparations in Japanese Americans who had been interns, this didn't lessen the fact that their entire lives as normal were stripped away to never return. I remember, you know, my dad had a thriving business before the war. My understanding is he was buying a new car every other year, so he had to do pretty good. Once he came back out of Manzanar in late 45, uh, they went to Utah for a year because it was too difficult to move back to Los Angeles with all the protesters saying, you know, no Japanese wanted here. Oh. But uh, he, he never, he never returned to his former life. He became a gardener, worked hard. But back in 55, I remember him, and I didn't think much of it, but he says, I'm going to get my U.S. citizenship. And, you know, reflecting back, saying, after all they took away from him, he wanted to become a U.S. citizen. So That's such I, a change of heart. It took me around 10 years after that to really cool down. And the second one, two of the one brother was in Japan, but the oldest sister, she had to, she graduated in 1944, so she didn't have a regular graduation. And, you know, they resent all that, but they don't talk about it too much. Yeah, and there was another gentleman that they talked him into going. Because, you know, he's probably in his 90s now, and they, so they finally convinced him, let's go to the track, let's go to the track. So they finally convinced him to go, and he got his ticket and everything, and as he was going to walk in, he turned around and walked out. He said, I can't go in there. So he had some bad memories over there. Like yeah. my sister, she won't go. She, she, will, she refuses to go. I say, you know, it's gonna look so. It's gonna be, and the mountains are beautiful, you know, and everything. She says, nope. Both Mr. Morioka and Mrs. Sensui, however, agree that a lot of the history is lost and not talked about enough. Well, for me, I think, uh, you know, I I have uh, three children and uh, four grandkids, and they have no clue as to what. Uh, we experienced at our age in terms of the internment camp. And when I tell them about the, uh, the riots and, uh, and different things uh, about the, what happened to us, uh, they're, they're at odd of, no, it could never happen. You know, they don't have an understanding. And unfortunately, of course, uh, uh, I think uh, history has become, or civics has become uh, a passe uh, uh, class uh, in terms of a grammar school, high school. And, and so our, our history is uh, kind of lost. I think there should be, everyone should be uh, be aware of what happened at Santa Anita, not just horse racing, you know. Although it may seem that this could not happen again in present day times, the Constitution was not changed and there is a chance that it could happen again. So anybody could be put in. Yeah, that's yeah, they, really they sad. They could gather up people and do the same thing. And this is uh, one of the things that uh, the redress thing was they wanted to have that 
and so something like this could never happen again, you know. Yeah. But it never, it never, uh, never happened. For many Asian Americans, they are treated and feel like they are stuck between two worlds, never completely belonging. Current Arcadia High sophomore and Thai Chinese American Pailin Tan shares some of her own experiences. In America, I always like knew that I was like different from other people, but like I guess since we're like as a young child, like you kind of like you're kind of in this bubble, especially living in the San Gabriel Valley. Like we don't really face that kind of like sort of racism because we are the majority. So for the most part, it was a breeze living in the San Gabriel Valley. I only had to deal with like a few minor inconveniences. Like I had to explain what and where Thailand is, explaining that like Thailand isn't Taiwan. And I remember even when I was in like sixth grade, some girl told me that Thailand wasn't real. And it was just a amusement park in Taiwan. And I think like that was kind of a big eye-opening experience for me because I didn't realize that so many people didn't know that this country even existed. I think my first encounter or one of my earliest encounters at least with racism was like I went on a road trip with my family in Northern California and we were denied a hotel room and like a white family behind us was given a hotel room, even though they didn't even have any reservation prior to that night. And it was just like, I didn't really get it at the time, but I think now looking back at it, it's kind of like, oh, I, I faced that and yeah. Mrs. Hideko Sensei experienced similar feelings, encountering racist name calling and slurs in both Japan and America. This, I came back here in 1952, but I remember going to school and this one little girl called me a dirty Jap and I knew what that meant. We went to Japan when I was almost four and the Japanese treated us bad. We were Amer dirty Americans, you know. We spoke the language and we looked like them, but they called us dirty Americans. Wow. Apart from feelings of not belonging, COVID-19 has caused a record number of Asian hate crimes and violence. Pylin talks about a candlelight she recently attended in Almanzar in honor of the Atlanta spa shootings. I actually live pretty close to Almanzar and um, I had heard about the candlelight on Instagram and I really wanted to go because I felt that what I wasn't I felt like I couldn't just sit here and like not do anything and I felt like I need like I felt like going there would and like I guess I felt like going there would make my experience more valid by hearing and seeing all these other people who are going through the same things that I'm going through and basically what we did there was we had moments of silence and we listened to speakers speak and it was just a really empowering type of thing and we lit candles it was just a really nice thing 
I I enjoyed it. Like Mr. Marioka and Mrs. Sansui, Pylon feels that the current education system curriculum does not thoroughly educate students of America's history and mistreatment of Asians as well as other minorities as a whole. She believes that this affects our ability to recognize and learn from these mistakes. I think the school curriculum fails to educate students of America's racist past, and I think this is a really crucial thing to know so that we can like have more educated discussions and also recognize how our like racist history has still affected our present society and like all of all of the actions from the past are still affecting us to this day and we also need to kind of recognize everything so that we don't repeat history and I'm sure that you've heard of Diversify Our Narrative, but like if you haven't, it's an organization that's committed to changing American school curriculum to teach children about America's racist past. And I think it's a really great resource for educators to look into in regards to these matters. I think what we as a whole community needs to do is recognize that we can't eliminate hate towards us if we can't eliminate the hate that we have for each other and I know it's like a really difficult thing with changing the minds of people especially older Asian people but I think that it can definitely start with us. However even with racism and unfair treatment of Asian Americans throughout history and today there are still a few heartwarming encounters that reveal, despite much conflict and hate, there are still unexpected moments of raw kindness and humanity. My dad told me, this was in uh, Tule Lake. He said he uh, there was a uh, there was a sergeant or whatever that was in charge of the charge of the uh, stockade, and he he did not treat the prisoners that well, you know, and so he was going to be transferred apparently to go to the Pacific or something. So, so my dad went around collecting money from me. He collected about $20. Everybody kind of, there's people that didn't give you the, you know, I hope he goes over there and dies, get shot or something, you know, <laughs> make that kind of thing. Yeah. But my dad, he said he was able to collect about $20. And then he gave it to that guy, put in the envelope and gave it to him. And he just told him, this is a trip money. This is what the Japanese do. When people go on a long trip, you give them money so they'll have money just in case type of thing. Oh, even though he... Yeah, so that guy got down on his knees and just cried like a baby, she, he said. I said, really? I said... I said, wow, that was kind of cruel for you. He said, no. He said, a lot of them, he told them that if you see people like us with faces like us while you're in the Pacific and if they're in trouble, can you help? Will you help them? That was the reason that my dad was doing that. <laughs> you know, I thought he was oh. teaching that guy a lesson, but no, he says no. He, he just told them, if you see people like faces like us, and they're in trouble, please help them. Isn't that something? That is something. That is something. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Keeping It Arcadia. We hope you enjoyed and learned a thing or two. We would also like to give a big shout out to everyone who agreed to be interviewed for sharing their thoughts and experiences. For more information about the Arcadia Historical Society that Ms. Beverly Street is part of, visit ArcadiaHistoricalSociety.org. We also have a new DCI Instagram account at Arcadia DCI, so you can check that out to get updates on DCI, our work, and get to know us better. You can also visit dciausd.weebly.com for more information and the full list of episodes. This has been Claire and Nicole with Arcadia Unified's DCI program. Thanks for sticking with us and stay tuned for more coming soon. This is Keep It Arcadia signing off.